AC and Effers, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by me. What? That's right. You've heard me say that if you want to get in better shape, you hire a personal trainer. Yeah, she knows the basics, can watch that deadlift form, but she's mainly there to tell you where to put the tired and, and to hold you accountable in your journey. That's where I come in to objectively read your work, find ways to make it stronger, and coach you along personalized. Every writer is different. There's no cookie cutter approach. Sessions include a personalized questionnaire, several reads with detailed notes, and an in-depth critique, as well as Skype calls with me. So if you're ready to level up, I'd be honored to serve you in your work. You don't become a writer and then write a novel. You become a writer by writing. Well, all right, CNFers, you know what this is. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, welcome. I'll come right out and say it. I think I had forgotten, I must have forgotten, to link up my microphone to Zencaster, which is what I've been using of late to record the conversations. So my audio, what's supposed to be so clean and crisp, is actually pretty echoey because my voice wasn't getting pick, picked up in my good mic. It was getting picked up in the built-in laptop microphone, which was, you know, a foot or two away from me instead of this beautiful thing I speak into now. So that happened. So I really apologize for that. I hope it doesn't distract you too much. You'd think after 212 of these, I'd have safeguards in place. Nope. Still a moron. My guest is Kevin Gilfoyle, and he's the author of the memoir, A Drive Into the Gap. It is published by Field Notes, which is super cool. It's a story about stories, fathers and sons and a mystery to find out the true identity of Roberto Clemente's bat that registered his 3,000th and final career hit. Kevin has also written novels and a movie, so he plays in different sandboxes. Uh, sandboxes? Jesus. I don't know, guys. This could be it. This could be the end. He plays in different sandboxes, you dig? Good Lord. Keep the conversation going on social media, at CNFPod, wherever you hang out. I've been deleting all my tweets on my Brendan O'Mara Twitter feed because it's my great goal to vanish and disappear and live a life like Ferdinand the Bull. Then my friend Ruby McConnell of episode 202 fame said I should make an essay out of the deleted tweets. I deleted some doozies, but there's many more. And it'll make for a good essay to write to avoid doing the things I should be doing, of course. The great lesson? I'm not funny and I'm not clever, and all these tweets are just some pathetic, sad grab for attention. Truly, truly pathetic. Lastly, if you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, you'll find show notes to this episode and others, and can subscribe to my monthly newsletter where I give out reading recs, podcast news, writing tips, and I raffle off books 
That's right. If you're on the email list and you don't unsubscribe, which I take super personally, you're entered in raffles to win books. And if you're feeling kind, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, screenshot that, send it to me, and I'll grant an hour of coaching. So think about 1,000, 1,500 words-ish. And just try to honor that. Once I see that screenshot, I'll reach back out and we'll get started. Not too shabby, right? I'm keeping this relatively short today because, well, just because. Once again, I'm apologizing for the audio. My my end. Kevin sounds great. It's embarrassing. And I'll go into a shame spiral and won't pull the nose up until I'm deathly close to the earth. Today's show is also sponsored by Casualty of Words, my writing podcast for people in a hurry. It's a daily show that is often under two minutes long. So go on, become another Casualty of Words. All right, let's do this. Let's do this thing. Let's welcome Kevin Gilfoyle. Woo! In the practice of writing, it's... um. You know, for those of us who are really in the thick of it, we know it's not as romantic as Instagram might make it out to be. <laughs> so, um, you know, so how do you, how have you cultivated a, a practice and a discipline in in your writing, whether it's the novels you write or something that you really something that's more personal and close to the heart as uh, a drive into the gap is? You know, every project I've undertaken, I've had to sort of learn how to do it over again, just because I'm in a, you know, a different stage of my life. You know, I wrote my first novel uh before i had kids um i had actually written i'd actually written a a novel you know just nights and weekends i was working at at an ad agency Uh, actually the ad agency kudal partners that eventually became field notes um Mm. but i was uh, working at an ad agency and and working on the novel you know nights and weekends and uh took me two years and uh i was when i finished i realized it was terrible so i literally threw it in a drawer, started a new one the next day. Yeah. It took me another two years. Um, and I finished that novel just before my first son was born and, uh, and sold it rather quickly. Um, and so I was, and this was at a time when the ad agency was uh, sort of transitioning out of advertising and into the retail company that would become Field Notes. And uh, so they didn't really need uh, a copywriter anymore. And so I, uh, uh, sold my first novel just as my son was, uh, first son was being born. So I just, uh, quit to, to be home with him and write full time. Uh, but then, but now that, that became a whole new routine because now I've got, I'm, I, I don't have a, another job, but I have this baby I'm taking care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so that was, you know, you, I, I thought this is going to be this is going to be a snap. I'm going to knock this novel out in like six months or whatever. No, it took me another two years because <laughs> I, I, I was busier than ever, you know, uh, raising this child. Um, and uh, so uh, then the, uh, that novel uh, came out in, uh, I guess that was 2010, 2010. And, um, and then I started, uh, uh, a, a number of other projects kind of in succession and, and um, driving to the gap was one of them. But again, you know, every, every single project had its own challenges and my, and, and just because my life was in a different place, um, completely different routines. 
Right. And I, I love uh, in an interview I read uh, that, that you did uh, early 2000s, I think um, you said, uh, you know, before I sat down and wrote that novel, and that might even been your first published novel, uh, not the one you threw in the drawer. Right. You said, I, I always thought that novelists were other people. I didn't know what it was they had, but I figured it was something I didn't have. So how did you, you know, get over that and build the muscle of creativity and the muscle of writing to overcome that, uh, that mindset? You know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, I, I guess I always thought there was some, that the novel is just something I didn't know how to do, you know, and, but I didn't realize that everybody teaches themselves how to do it. Like, there, right. There is no, um, there is no secret. There is no, you know, and everybody does it a, a, a different way. And, um, uh, and everybody is self-taught, <laughs> right. I mean, you can, you can, yeah. you can go and, um, take creative writing classes and, and, uh, you go to workshops and you can learn, uh, tricks of craft, but the, uh, and, and good practices and those kinds of things, but everybody's got to figure out their own way through it. It's just, it's such a massive personal undertaking. There's really no way anybody can help you with it. It's, um, you know, uh, the loneliest kind of project that you can undertake and you just need, uh, to, uh, muscle through it and, and figure out your own way. And so well, I guess what I meant when I said that was that, that that was the big revelation I had when I was writing it you don't become a writer and then write a novel you become a writer by writing and, yeah, and it's, yeah. it sounds obvious when i say when you say that but it, it's really not obvious when you're when you're trying to undertake a task like that like writing a novel for the first time you you're always going to when you start feel like i don't have any idea how to do this Right. And in the people that we see in lights and uh, even not in lights, just the fact that they have, you know, something between two hard covers or paperback it, in some ways, you know, especially as you're just getting started, it might feel that they have been anointed somehow and it just appeared on the shelves and it just appeared fully formed out of their out of their heads because all that work and the grinding and the dozens of drafts that go into it and the repetition, it's not immediately apparent as, you know, why would it be? But but it does just feel like it comes out fully formed. And then when you sit down in your chair and you realize how hard it is to put something coherent together, it's, uh, it just, it can be fairly dispiriting. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. It, it, it is, it is constant, almost constant despair with, <laughs> right. with little moments of, um, revelation and ecstasy, you know, like sort of sprinkled in, but the, you know, it, it, it's, the um the joys of it are kind of like uh gambling it's just complete intermittent gratification you know right. with with long uh stretches of failure in between yeah and ultimately the house wins somehow <laughs> and it bludgeons right. you <laughs> That's exactly right yeah, I also like how you said that, and you're alluding to it throughout this um this early part here that there's nothing magical about it it's just a matter of you know. Yeah sitting with it, doing the hard work. And of course, as I uh, heard you say one time, it's, there's some luck involved. So, you know, uh, but the harder you work, sometimes the more luck comes your way, right? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the, the, the luck part of it in, is more, is a lot of that is, is, is really what, I'm, what I, I was talking about, the publishing end of it, where mm -hmm. a lot of things have to align. Um, for your book to get published, right? You have to find an agent who, uh, I mean, I, the, 
the rules have changed a little bit now because there's a lot of people. I'm not talking about people who you know there's self-publishing and vanity publishing and those kinds of things. But if you're talking about the traditional publishing route, you, you know you need to find an agent who really understands you and is and is passionate about is, is as passionate about your book as you are, and then he's got to find an editor who is as passionate about your book as you are. That editor has to convince, um, you know, a board of a uh, committee of people who are going to release the money from the publisher to, to uh, <laughs> purchase, to buy your book, that they should be as passionate about uh, this novel as you are. And all of those things are outside your control, right? So, you know, you, you hear so often about, you know, uh, books that are now considered um, uh, masterpieces that were, uh, uh, you know, rejected, uh, time, you know, let's say Confederacy of Dunces as, as an example, just rejected time and time and time again before they finally you know, uh, found the, the right person who was able to give it to the right person who was able to give it to the right person. And, you know, that happens a thousand times, uh, or, or that, that re the rejection end of that happens a thousand times a day to writers all over the world. Right. And, uh, the, the, I was very, very lucky that I was able to have all those stars aligned with my first book. It just, that I, I have no, um, I'm very proud of the novels I've written. I'm very proud of my first novel, but um, there are a lot of very, very, there are a lot of excellent novels that didn't get the breaks that mine did. And I'm, uh, I, I understand that and I am grateful for it. Hmm. I wonder if maybe you can talk about how important uh, reading the, the correspondence between Shelby Foote and Percy were to your uh, sort of development as, as a writer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I was a um, a big Walker Percy fan. This is in the you know as I like started. I guess I started reading him in college, and and then in the years after, and um, I found that book at Faulkner House in New Orleans, a great bookstore in New Orleans, and um, and read it on uh, a vacation I was taking down there, and I was just enthralled by it. Um, there, just the. Is I, you know, I, I hadn't published a novel yet. I was, um, uh, you know, I'd done some, I'm trying to remember exactly when this would have been, but I'd done some, a little bit of freelancing at this point, but I was mostly an advertising, you know, as a creative director in an ad agency who one day wanted to write a novel. And to see these, to, to read these guys talk about writing as a passion, but also as a vocation at the same time, you know, people, these two guys who had been friends their whole lives, um, was just really, really inspiring me and really opened up. Um, and, and, and it also revealed them as sort of ordinary people in a way, like we were, we were saying before that, you know, that they understood that writing is just the, is just hard work. Right. And, um, that all of that was, uh, kind of a revelation to me reading, reading that, that novel. And it's also full of like, I, I had never really thought about, writing as a philosophy or, or philosophies of writing. And they had two very kind of different approaches to um, what they were doing. And it was, and that, that enabled me to start, start thinking about writing in a completely different way. So it was inspiring in that way too. I, what I especially like about uh, everything you're saying with respect to that is that, you know, what underscores this is doing 
or finding finding books as mentors and almost going through your own MFA program, if you will. Like you just find books that you admire and you try to imitate them as best you can. And through the repetition of it, your own voice will come out. Right. And that's the way you do this. I, I think um, there's an agency there where you can just say, I'm going to, these are the writers I admire and I'm going to try and do my best to try to throw my hat into that ring and not, you not think that, okay, if I get this next degree, then I'm a writer. It's just like, no, it's like, read these things that I, that I enjoy, you know, fill up on that and then just try to do it yourself. And then through that messy repetition, eventually you get better. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and I also think that for me anyway, as a person who primarily is published fiction, um, the, uh, I, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I mostly studied, I, I was basically a journalism major. And so I mostly studied nonfiction writing in college. I took from that the more of the idea of, 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 as, as I was talking about sort of writing as a vocation, that, that, the, the, the discipline of nonfiction writing, um, where your, uh, your goals are to be clear, um, your goals are to uh, really think about the reader and your goal is to uh, get a paycheck too. Right. And, right. and, you know, I think, um, I think I really, whenever I, I am talking to other fiction writers, I'm writing workshop or I'm running workshops uh, with uh, even fiction workshops. I lean on um, nonfiction source, like on writing well, is I think the greatest book about written about writing um, by uh, William Zinser. I think it's a, the greatest book written about writing um, that there ever was. And I, I think even though it's it's all about nonfiction writing, every fiction author should read that book because it will just clarify. Uh, you know, the, the 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 fiction canvas is so large that I think that when you start to employ nonfiction techniques to uh, fiction, you, you are able to, to, to focus what you're doing so much better. Um, and, uh, and so that was kind of an early revelation for me too. You know, like, like the, um, the sexy thing to study is uh, narrative nonfiction, right? But I, I, I think that it works both ways. Like, like there's nonfiction that's been informed by, uh, creative writing. I think the creative writing needs should be informed by nonfiction writing too. I think the, the, you end up with, um, a, you end up with fiction that is, that is just clearer, more concise, and that thinks about the reader in a way that a lot of, uh, fiction that I read, I think doesn't, but should. What do you think it was about, uh, you know, nonfiction, um, a skill set that that lent itself to a greater sense of focus and clarity. You know, was there something in particular that you could point to that really sort of unlocked something for you? Wow. Sorry, let me think about that a minute. I, yeah, sure. I, I think. Um, well, well, I, I mean, clearly that, like, you know, it, just reading. As I as I did in college, I read a ton of 
sort of the great 20th century writers of nonfiction, you know, like Hershey and um, uh, A.G., you know, those guys were all telling stories that you, you could compare to the greatest novels ever written, right? And, but they had this huge restraint on it, you know, which that it had to be true. <laughs> and, uh, but, they, but they were still, right. they were, <laughs> it, you know, and, and I think that for me, putting limits, putting those kind of restraints on it, just philosophically, just focuses you in a way that um, focuses your creative writing in a way that just makes it um, clearer. And, you know, it's, it's, um, what's the, there's an old Elmer Leonard um, line where he says, he, when he, when he, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to blow it. Well, I can't remember exactly what he, he says. Something like, um, uh, writing for him is just taking out all the stuff he doesn't need or something like that, you know? And, and, yeah. and I, I, I think, I know, I know he said it much better than that, but, you know, I think too, too much fiction has a lot of stuff in it you don't need. And nonfiction ne- almost never, good, great nonfiction almost never does. That when I read a novel that is as streamlined as like a John Hershey essay, that is, that is when I'm like, oh, that, that is my, my favorite kind of fiction. The stuff that just has stripped away all the extraneous things and, and is just, uh, you know, takes you on a bullet train from the beginning to end. Those are the, those are the novels that, that, and the stories that I love to read. Hmm. So where, where and when are you, are you getting the, the writing bug, uh, you know, in your, you know, as you were coming up as a, as a, as a young person uh, working for the Houston Astros and maybe even somewhat following in the footsteps of your father, you know, when do you get this bug for story and a bug for writing? You know, in my family, um, my dad was a really good storyteller, you know. I think when I was real little, telling stories was just the way in my house that you got attention, right? Because mm-hmm. my dad loved stories. And, he, you know, if you could find, if you could come up with a good story to tell him, you would have, you know, you, you could have everybody in the house would shut up and listen to you. And I think, you know, that initially was probably when I was drawn to it. And then eventually, obviously, when I was, very young. I was a big reader and I love, I just love getting lost in a big book. And so, uh, you know, at some point I knew like, Oh, I I want to do for somebody else what, you know, Tolkien did for me. You know, I used to, I remember, you know, my, when my dad worked for the Pittsburgh pirates in the seventies and we would go to, I don't know, 50 or 60 games a year. And, uh, we would, then we would wait for him after the game. It would be like, you'd have to work for like two hours after the game. I was I was like in third or fourth grade. And so we just sit in his office while he was running all over the stadium, you know, setting up interviews with reporters and stuff and players. And uh, he had a, a typewriter there. And so I would just put a piece of paper in the typewriter and I would just write stories. Well, it was, it was a way for me to pass the time, you know, waiting for my dad to, to get off work at you know, midnight or whenever it was. And that's when I, that's really when I started writing. I never finished them because I would I would stop writing when he was ready to go. <laughs> and I would throw whatever I was writing. I would throw away, and then the next time I would start. You know, so I, I you know I wrote a hundred beginnings of 
you know, first couple pages of stories sitting in his office. But that was really where I really just started to love the idea of writing. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's great. Was there, was there a moment like, as you, as you got older and then you, you figured that you might have to, you know, quote unquote, like get a real job that pays real money and stuff. And you look back and be like, you know, all along, it was that thing I was doing at my dad's typewriter in the office. Like, was, was there that moment of revelation where it's like, yeah, I, why can't I do this right now? Wow. I mean, I never, I, I still was always skeptical that I'd be able to write full time for a living until literally till I got the call that my novel had sold. Like I, I, you know what I mean? Like I never, I always thought it was going to be a hobby. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I, you know, that was just all, you know, just a life changing phone call. Um, so no, I didn't, that revelation didn't happen until after <laughs> it had already happened. It, it was not, uh, for me, it was never a thing like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to uh, write this novel uh, and somebody's going to pay me for it. I, I, I mean, obviously in the back of my mind, you, that's what you hope to, to be published. Um, but when I was writing it, that, that wasn't, I, I, I never felt, oh my gosh, if this, if I can't get a publisher for this novel, I'm going to be crushed. Um, it was, it was a thing I did because I enjoyed doing it and it was fulfilling. And I had, a, you know, I had a, I had a story that really felt like I had to push it out of me. And um, so uh, no, I would, I, I would never say that being a professional full, a full-time professional writer was, it was a dream, but it was never like a great ambition. I just didn't, I realized that the chances of it happening were slim. And if, if it didn't happen, I, I had a job at, you know, working at that ad agency, I had a job that I loved and I was, would have been perfectly happy to continue doing that and writing as a hobby. I, I, I would have, I would have had a very happy life that way, I think. Yeah. And I, I guess that's the, maybe even like before that you, you knew that it was something you could do as a living writing novels. It was like, you know, sometimes there's that, there's um. I don't know, some sort of a, a moment where you realize that there's this there's this thing that you just desperately need or want to do. And sometimes people just get bogged down by 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 work, by life, by extenuating circumstances. And then they they just fail to prioritize, whether it's painting or writing songs or in your case, novels that, uh, you know, at some point you just you just realize like, oh, when I was when I was a kid, there was that. Thing I, I would just love to do for the sake of doing it. And it seems like at some point or another, you did pick up, maybe you just continually wrote, but it just feels like it was something that, you know, you found and you were going to do no matter what. And it just so happens, you know, you, you were able to parlay it into something more, you know, permanent and sustaining it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and even like the, the last 10 years or so, you know, I've sort of gone from, I've, been working on a, novel, a couple of novels in the background, but I've gone from sort of project to project. I wrote for a TV show for uh, a while. I uh, I wrote a Drive to the Gap. I wrote a, a movie that came out um, last year, and uh, you know, and, and, and a movie. The movie's called Chasing the Blues. Uh, it's an indie mm-hmm. film. Came out. I guess it was. I guess it's year before last is when it was actually released. Now, but it has a uh, John Lovitz. 
uh, Grant Rosenmeyer, who was um, he was Ari Tenenbaum in the Royal Tenenbaums. You know, one of the kids in the track suits. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. He's, he's, he's one of obviously my favorite not movies. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's a great actor too. He's great in this movie. He's um, uh, he's not a kid anymore, obviously. Um, but it's a it's a movie about it's based on an old short story of mine, and it is uh, this it's about a pair of uh, rival record collectors in the eighties. Right at the time when CDs are coming out and LPs are kind of fading. And uh, they basically simultaneously discover a mythically rare blues record from the 30s in this uh, old woman's apartment on the south side of Chicago. And uh, they both sort of end up in this apartment. They uh, neither one of them will leave because they know that the other one will take it. And the and the woman is she's a uh, she's a little uh, uh, she's got a little bit of dementia and so she just sort of she's happy to have the company so she just keeps feeding them and, and letting them stay in her apartment <laughs> and the, and the record is also uh, alleged to be uh, cursed it's a, it's it's supposed suppose allegedly nobody's ever heard it but it allegedly has the screams of a woman being murdered on it and uh, so anyway they. Uh, so half the movie is this, uh, uh, the two of them in this apartment trying to take this record from each other. And the other half uh, takes place in the present when they get out of prison for what happened uh, in that apartment eventually. Um, and uh, it, I, I was really pleased with it. It came out great. It was a great, it was a Chicago director. It was his first uh, feature film. And um, uh, I was, I was really, really pleased with the way it came out. You can find it on, you know, demand and, uh, Amazon, I think, and places like that. So with respect to uh, a drive into the gap, you know, how do you, um, like, how long was this story sort of percolating, percolating in your head as you were con- uh, sort of conceiving of, of, uh, of the story and, and taking, taking on this, uh, this project? Well, you know, as I, uh, as I said before, I used to work for the company that became, Field notes, and uh, I'm still great friends with everybody there. Jim Kudal, who is the president of that company, is uh, one of my best friends, and I would continue to occasionally do work for them. If they had a little project or something that needed to be written, Jim would call me up, and I would help them out with, you know, little little things here and there. And so one day he called me and he said, um, "We are uh, going to do a baseball edition of Field Notes." And he said, you know, when you were here in the office, you used to tell all these baseball stories all the time. You know, stories from my dad had been a, a baseball executive for 35 years with the Yankees and the Pirates in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I worked for the Pirates and the Houston Astros over the course of three seasons. And um, I just had a lot of baseball stories that I was always sort of, you know, throwing around in the, in the office. And um, he's, he, his idea was to just have a little, an, an additional field, field notes, memo book sized book that uh, just had a bunch of these stories in it. And I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And, and then he said, but you have to tell the story about Roberto Clemente's bat. And so this, this was a story that, that didn't have an ending. You know, it was uh, a story about a bat, that a baseball bat uh, that had been Roberto Clemente's that hung in my childhood bedroom 
for uh, the, the entire time I was growing up. And then sometime in the 90s, um, uh, a gentleman named Tony Bartero, who had been trainer for the Pirates, stopped by. Uh, it was a good friend of my dad's. My dad was, Tony was retired. My dad was now in Cooperstown at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he came to visit my parents in Cooperstown. And on the way to the bathroom, he saw this bat and he came back, carried it back into the living room. And he showed it to my father, he said, Bill, where did you get this bat? And uh, my father went through the story of how he got it. And Tony said, no, this is the bat Roberto Clemente used to get his 3000th and final hit. And this was a huge shock to my father because he was, uh, uh, he had been the public relations director of the pirates when Clemente got the hit. Uh, he was the one who got the bat from Clemente, uh, a Louisville slugger that he sent to the hall of fame, the bat that's in the hall of fame as we speak. Um, and to be now be told that there's another bat that he owns that, uh, might be the actual bat that Clemente used to get his 3000 hit. This would be, this would be, this would be like a major memorabilia scandal in baseball. So all I so I knew that, and all I knew was that my father said he looked into it, and he didn't think it was true. Uh, so that was that. That was the and I, I honestly I didn't even question him very much about it. I just figured they somehow they had, they had gotten a photograph, or so they figured it out, and it wasn't true. So, but I told that story in the office, and Jim was Jim said, "All right, you just with all these other stories you're going to tell, you got to tell that story." But but then I was like, "Well, I." I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it really has an ending because I don't know how my dad figured that out. And I don't, and he at this point had um, uh, Alzheimer's related dementia and I, I couldn't follow up with him and, and, and figure it out. So I said, I guess I've got to now try to recreate what he did and find out if this story can be true. That became the entire book <laughs> was this journey of me trying to figure out, is it possible that this bat that was in my bedroom as a child was actually the bat Roberto Clemente used for his 3000th hit. And so, I suspect too, uh, like that's kind of the narrative thrust uh, of it is like trying to solve the mystery or this unsolvable mystery of the bat. Um, but of course there's the, the thread that goes through it about, you know, you and your father and, you know, and, and the, the caulk of Alzheimer's that you talked about sort of, filling itself in in the in the synapses which i thought was just like a beautiful way of in a evocative way of putting that well thank you and i mean you know and the crazy thing about what happened was that when i started looking into it i started to think it oh my gosh it might be true you know when i hmm. i talked i found i tracked down tony barterum and i and he told me why this the story about why he believed that was the bat and it was entirely convincing it was a completely confusing. Huh. And then I talked when I talked to other people who were in the dugout who all, who believed the same thing. I, you know, I, 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 I wasn't sure what to think anymore. And so that really drove the investigation even, even further because, it, you know, I just, I just taken my father's word for it, that, that, you know, they had already solved this mystery. And when I started pulling at the thread, I wasn't sure they had it all you say that, you know, you had a life in proximity to baseball and I, I, and so much of this, you know, it's, 
it, it's great how you, you know, spackle in all these different kind of stories, but we're all going in sort of essentially one direction. Um, you know, what did being in the proximity to baseball mean to you and even playing a lot of your, uh, you know, pony league and probably in, in your games on double day field at that beautiful field in Cooperstown. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was, you know, when you're, at yeah. the time, of course. Yeah. At the, I mean, at the time when I was a kid, I just didn't know any different. Right. Like, you know, we would, yeah. uh, you know, my entire family and I, and I was like in elementary school, our entire family would move to Florida for two months and I would go to school down there. You know, we would, we would just pack up in at the end of February and um, move to Bradenton. And uh, you know, I lived, we lived that run a house on like Anna Marie Island. And, you know, so I, then for, so for two months, I, I lived in Florida. I had a different set of friends down there. I went to school with them, uh, hung out at spring training every, all weekend, every weekend. You know, I, 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 I would go to 50, probably 60, 50 or 60 Pirates games every summer. I, you know, I, it was just that looking back, it was an incredible childhood. It was, it was just absolutely idyllic, you know, way to live. And then, then we moved to Cooperstown, which is I, one time when I was working in, uh, I think for the, either the Pirates or the Astros, I was in a press box and somebody introduced me to a reporter. This guy's a baseball writer. And so he said, Hey, Kevin grew up in Cooperstown. And this reporter looked at me and he said, my God, he said, until this moment, it never even occurred to me that people lived there. <laughs> right? Like, like, he, yeah. like Cooperstown was like a, like a Disney world or something. Like it was just, it was a theme, like it was a, it was a myth, it was just a mythical place, right? Where, you know, baseball was allegedly in, invented. But in, in a lot of ways, it was, it was, it's the, it's the strangest, most wonderful town. Like it's just the, like the people there are nuts. And, uh, you know, baseball is, is this, it's a sort of a company town for baseball, you know, but it's also got this rich literary history. You know, it's where James Fenimore Cooper lived. The town is actually named after his father. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's just, it's a really super weird place, like out of a movie or something. And, and you know, we lived there. We, I grew up there as a kid. It's a, you know, and, and at the time you're just like, oh, I can't wait to get out of this place. Like every buddy, other kid who just wants to grow up and be an adult and be out on his own. But you know, I look back on it right. and I was like, oh, that was the greatest childhood I could have. I couldn't have fashioned. I could have made up a better childhood for myself. It was the best. It was the best. Yeah. I, I love the um, the point. Like you were, of course, on teams that weren't very good, but a lot of teams <laughs> bust in to play yeah. at Double Day Field. And you wrote in the piece, uh, you know, winning stopped being the point for us. It was about playing, playing as much as you could every day that you could. And I, I love that sentiment. I think that just, that applies to so much. I can apply to, to writing. There are certain things that are out of your control, but as long as you enjoy the playing or the writing, then, and you can do it again and again, like that's really its own victory. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now Cooperstown has uh, what's called the Dreams Park. It's a place where Little League, you know, uh, teams from all over the country every summer come and they play these tournaments every week. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of kids, you know, do it every year. When I was growing up, the team wanted to come to Cooperstown. They would they, they would just book a – say they want they want to go play a game on Double Day Field, and if there's nobody else for them to play, they would just play us. We'd just get, we'd just get nine kids together and, you know <laughs> – uh, and run out there and, and play them, you know, between, I mean, Pony League and American Legion and high school and those games, 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I can't, I couldn't even tell you how many games I played on double day field for hundreds, 200. I don't, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, it was, we played almost every day in the summer and huh. it's, it's this, it's gorgeous, you know, fields like manicured, like a professional baseball diamond. It's, you know, 10,000 seats. And, uh, you know, just to be able to, as a kid to play in a, in a park like that every single day is, is a dream. It's an absolute dream. What position did you play? I played second base. Nice. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have the arm to make the throw from the other side of the diamond, but I, I could <laughs> right. knock the ball down. Okay. <laughs> right. So as an primarily as a novelist, what, was uh, the challenge for you, if any, of, of writing something that, you know, was, of course, rooted in, you know, in something true, a true story, a verifiably true story? Like, what was that challenge for you, you know, pivoting genre, so to speak? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I didn't think that much about it I, I, in, in terms of how different it was. The, the journalism aspect of it was obviously different. Like, you know, the interviews and and you know there are a lot suddenly there's a, a lot of people involved besides me <laughs> and and also you know the story ha, you know had to be what the story was not what i wanted it to be which you know is is just the temptation you have as as uh, a novelist i think is to sort of uh when you start you're you know kind of outline where you're going and you know maybe you don't end up exactly there but you you know you you always have a destination that you think you're writing toward at least i do um and this was very different you know i would find out a new piece of information it would take you to a a completely different different direction you know so writing something that i i had absolutely no idea how it was going to end that i guess that was uh was the big difference but the the writing part of it um like i said you know I've, i've been influenced by um a lot of nonfiction writers, my, my formal, you know, education as a writer was all in nonfiction. So that part I, I felt came really naturally. It was, it was the becoming a journalist thing that was really new. Um, yeah. The, uh, I love how you were able to create tension in this piece as well. Like with the, you know, are, what, while you're on the hunt for for the identity of this bat, is it the slugger, or the Adirondack, or you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're able to you know track down footage from from this like rogue <laughs> photographer who goes in with his two kids and actually calling says you spoke to your dad and he's in the dugout taking you know shooting uh, shooting footage of this. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Just, like, Again, yeah, crazy. an absolutely crazy story. Like I like better and wilder than I could have made up is the discovery of right this 40 year old eight millimeter super eight film that nobody had nobody had watched and it was just been sitting in this guy's closet since 1973 or 1972 <laughs> it's insane absolutely insane yeah and i love too that you're right most novelists write fiction to create order out of chaos and then you go on to say the nonfiction writer often does the opposite he starts with the assumption that the true story he wants to tell conforms to a logical narrative. Instead, he discovers that there are always motivations that are incomprehensible, that people act irrationally, that memories are imperfect. The nonfiction writer uncovers the chaos hidden beneath the orderly surface. I was like, I love that. It was such a great passage. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, I guess that's the answer to your question earlier. That is the frustration of the novelist writing nonfiction is that you can't 
tie up every uh, loose end. And there are a lot of things that are just unknowable. That's that, that is the biggest frustration is all of these unknowable things that, you know, you, you want to um, resolve, but you just can't. And the best part is the, the following sentence after that is I decided to write another novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. After that, that's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, and at what point do you know that when you're, when you're writing the, writing this thing, that it's not just this mystery of the bat, but that you are also going to tie in uh, your relationship to your father and then his, uh, his slow, you know, um, sort of succumbing to Alzheimer's throughout this whole whole story as well. Right. Well, that was the thing that was going on when I was writing it that was, you know, sort of preoccupying my thoughts and my, you know, um, emotions. And it, it just seemed natural that it, it, it didn't make any sense to ignore that, you know, the, the, that, you know, that was sort of the primary thing I was feeling at the time that I was writing. And since my dad was a part uh, of, of the story, it kind of made sense to pour all that stuff into it as well. You know, I, I, I you know, it, there are all the things that I, this, this story could be over really quickly if I could just ask him and he, you know, yeah. and he's alive and he's there and I could sit in a room with him and I, I, he can't answer, he, you know, it's a, he, you can't ask him the question. You can't, you know, and so that was the sort of sense of frustration that I think just sort of permeates the the mystery and the search throughout the book. Yeah, and you write so like poignantly about the unrelenting present, as you put it. You know, to your father at the time, you were uh, a you know forty year old father, and also a you know at age you know you're at Notre Dame and and so forth. It was like you were everything at once. Whereas like your mother, of course, could, you know, sequentially put you in the right order. So it was like, that must have been just incredibly hard to, to witness. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, I, I, anybody who's been through that with a relative, you know, I, I, uh, it's just, it's just the hardest thing to see someone because they're there and, and you can even see some of their personality. It's not like they're, com- they're completely gone, but they just can't make sense of anything. And and so they just live in this sort of, you know, my dad just lived in this constant state of frustration and bewilderment. And he, you know, especially, you know, around that time when I was writing this book, he knew, he knew that something, he knew, it wasn't like he was sort of blissfully ignorant. He knew that this wasn't right. And, but he didn't know what it was, you know, and, and, um, he just, just constantly, constantly, um, anxious and frustrated. And and it's just really hard to watch somebody you love go through that. It's just Mm. really really painful. Right. Right. Do you see yourself, uh, writing more, you know, baseball stories and nonfiction of this nature or um, or is is that is that something you want? You feel like you uh you uh still have the itch to to do? I don't know. I um, I I might on some level, especially uh, you know something short. I you know I tend the big projects. You know, if I'm going to undertake a a project that um 
you know, is going to take a substantial amount of time. I, I prefer to write, people say that, you know, there's the old adage about writing what you know, but I much prefer to write about things I'm curious about and, and by definition, don't know all that much about it. You know, my, my preference is, is to write about something I'm learning about. So I love baseball. I, I don't have a burning desire to write a lot about it. You know, this, this, this story was a little bit different because it was really a story about, it wasn't just a story about baseball. It was a story about my dad. It was, you know, it was, uh, I think at some point in there, I say, it's a story about stories. It's a story about memory. It's, you know, it was all, and you know, those things were really um, captivating to me, but um, as much as I love baseball and I miss baseball, I don't, I don't feel a huge urge to write about baseball just for the sake of it. Mm. Yeah. May, and maybe you can, uh, oh, tell a little story about having to um court uh Barry Bonds to sign oh my gosh. sign material sign material <laughs> oh gosh so i i was an intern with the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1989 and Barry Bonds was on that team this is he was uh, a much different player than i think most people remember he was he had a he was, i can't remember how many years he'd been in the league but he 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 was still like you could like a, you know a promising future star. And I think he, the year I was there, I think he hit about 240 something and he had, he stole a bunch of bases and he hit a bunch of, he hit quite a few home runs, but he wasn't like a, um, you know, a big, all, you know, an all-star yet, but he was, a, everybody had their eye on him. They knew he was going to be a great player. And um, so my job, because I was like the, literally the lowest employee in the entire building, and so I, I got all the jobs nobody else wanted to do. And one of them was the, the community services department would put together a list of requests, most of them from kids who were in the hospital, like, you know, terminally ill children. And then mixed in there would be like, you know, the, the owner of the team, you know, had a, wanted to give an autograph to somebody, a friend of his. So, you know, there was, it was that sort of mix of things. But there usually weren't that many. It was like, I, I would never, I never brought more than three or four for any one player and on any given day, because they got other things to do. And they, they were most, you know, most of the time they would see me, the players would see me come in the clubhouse with the stack of, you know, eight by 10 glossy photos and a Sharpie, and they would kind of roll their eyes. <laughs> um, you, you know, but they, most people had a good, uh, the, everybody else in that clubhouse really treated me well, and were really nice about it. And, um, they understood it was part of their job, and but Barry just never—he just didn't, absolutely didn't want to do it. And I, and I, I think I even say in the book, I, I began to understand at some point. I think what, I think he thought in the back of his mind that whatever he gave you, you like if 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 I asked him to sign sign three pictures today and he did it, I would come back with twenty tomorrow. You know, so I think it. Yeah. I, I think that was his attitude. Was just like I'm just going to just not do it. Even though not doing it was a huge pain, like because I would just sit there and stare at him in the clubhouse, and he would get mad, you know. But I like I have a job to do. They're gonna get. They're gonna just send me back down here if I don't get this get this autograph, you know. And I'm gonna get yelled at if I can't make you do this. And you know, so he would make. So he would just make up stories about you know. He'd accuse me of of. Um, taking these pictures and, and selling his autograph and stuff, which is insane because they all say like to Jimmy on them. Like, you know, there's no, there's no memorabilia market for personalized 
you know, uh, <laughs> uh, photos or anything. And so I, it would be on a home game. I would, you know, it would be a huge chunk of my day, a couple of hours, just stalking him in the clubhouse every day. And eventually I did figure out that the only way I could get him to do it is that the only person he was, whose opinion mattered to him was the manager, Jim Leland. And uh, he also knew that Leland wouldn't, if Leland saw him giving me a hard time, he wouldn't put up with it. And so uh, I would just, my job was just basically to wait until Leland walked through the room and then I would run up to Barry and I'd say really loud, Barry, I need you to sign these photos. <laughs> and, and he, as soon as he saw Leland, he would just, oh, I got it. You know, he knew he couldn't say no. Um, but that, yeah, that was my, I spent, uh, my whole summer was oh, like 40% of that job was trying to get Barry Bonds to sign three pictures for sick kids. Like it was, oh, uh, it, was it was the worst. It was the worst. And then, and then, and then having him berate me and accuse me of all kinds of things in between. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Well, yeah. so, uh, just a couple things, Kevin, um, you know, be mindful of your time, of course. Um, you know, when you, when you're writing novels, or even you know, thinking about, you know, or when you were writing uh, Drive into the Gap, or some, or or anything for that matter, you know, where do you feel most alive and most engaged in the process of uh, of of creating something? There are just times. It's not always like this. You know, writing is you know, ninety five percent of it is a grind, right? It's just you know, it's just hard work like anything else, but there are times when you have a scene and a story and a character in you that you, and, and you know, the only way to make it real is to get those words out and on the page. And there's just, there are times when you feel that urge to take this part of your imagination and make it real. Um, that is thrilling, really really thrilling and, and i think every writer writes because they they put up with everything else just to experience those moments and they don't even last long you know it's not even like a full day of writing it's like you know it's, it might be like like an hour where you are just can't get the words out of you fast enough and, and um you there's a great satisfaction in have making this uh this platonic thing in your head become an actual thing on the page that that for me is the whole the whole ball game that's that's when it that when it that's when it gets good fantastic well well kevin where where can people uh you know find you online and get a little more familiar with your work and if they're not already familiar with it um, you know what? Currently, I I would say the the best place to go just to go to the uh, uh, search up field notes and a drive into the gap and uh, um, uh, look up uh, uh, that page. You'll get a good good sense of that uh, book. I actually just read this is this is publishing uh, uh, weeds, but I actually just clawed back the rights to my first two novels. So. Um, Cool. They are, yeah, it's great. But um, currently, they might be uh, as we're as we're having this conversation, they might be hard to find. Uh, I'm sure you can find them used someplace. So those books are "Cast of Shadows" and uh, "The Thousand" are uh, are my two novels. Uh, "Chasing the Blues" uh, on demand somewhere on your television set. I think it's on Prime somewhere. But but yeah, if I, if you're curious uh, at all, I would go 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 search out a drive into the gap. 
quote Mel Allen. How about that? That was fun. Thanks to Kevin for the time and for my kick-ass editing and coaching service for sponsoring the show along with Casualty of Words, the writing podcast for people in a hurry. Go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and if you dig the show, either one, this one especially, and Casualty of Words, consider sharing it. You know, give digital fist bumps. Consider leaving reviews. Those all help if you want. If not, whatever. Follow the show. Keep the conversation going at CNF Pod. Sign up for the newsletter, BrendanOmero.com. I think that's about it. I know it's just, it's amazing. I'm sorry about the audio there. And you, you think, because I'm, because, because really, all I do is interview. And I couldn't get my own damn audio right. So I can't even, I almost feel like I can't even say my catchphrase here, because I truly messed up. But in any case, if you can't do interview, see ya.